Thank you. You're alive. Alive in Christ. It's a pleasure to be here. I have um, experienced some interesting challenges in, in, in coming today, and, and um, I won't make any, any big issue about that, but what I want to do is kind of get straight into this, and I kind of want to make um, this Resurrection Sunday a kind of a point to kind of clarify a point, something that's in my mind. I'm going to make it fun for you, hopefully. But at the same time, um, kind of address an issue. The issue that Christians, to some extent, have no idea about what life's about. The whole idea of here we are celebrating a dead man on a Friday and then coming again two days later and celebrating a resurrected man. And to some extent, we have no idea what life's about. We're about dullness about deadness, and hopefully by the end of the day, you'll think differently about that idea, and today, I've kind of given it, I mean, I guess this is me laying out my, my table here by saying I want this to be about two visions of a revolution, two visions of a revolution, about how Christianity really represents life out of death. Strange enough, one of my favorite movies, and this is one of the things I, I want to challenge today, the idea that we know nothing about what it means to live. One of my favorite movies, um, The Outlaw Josie Wales, when um, old Clint Eastwood, who is the Outlaw Josie Wales, is uh, in a bar at the end where a bunch of bounty hunters are coming to obviously try and take him in, you know, in that classic Western style, and one of the the bounty hunters, he goes and talks to me. He says, what you, what, why are you doing this? The man says, a man's got to make a living. And Josie Wales replies, dying ain't a way of living. <laughs> it's funny because in the movie it makes perfect sense, but in life, actually dying is a way of living. So is Christianity obsessed with death? Well, yeah, in one sense. Even apocalypse, even what we, you know, a few years, was it last year, we went through the book of Revelation, and even apocalypse is not really about death. It's not really about the end of all things. As a genre, wherever you see it, apocalypse is really about how do we get to a better life? And to some extent, it's about the erosion of all that we've cherished and comes to its complete end in order for something new. It's about rebirth. And to some extent, you can only have that once all the rubbish is cleared out of the way. And so even that as a genre is not really about death. In some extent, it's true what The old parable is, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. In other words, if you really want something new, you're going to have to do away with what you have before you. In other words, to enjoy your cake, you really do have to eat it, and you cannot keep it. And so I want to kind of start off by showing 
a typical old world view. But let me pray, and then we kind of jump in, and um, then hopefully eventually we'll look at our text. So let me pray, and we'll begin. So Lord, I'm praying for help today, because I don't want this to be a typical, you know, let's roll out you know, the typical message and hopefully encourage people. But Lord, I believe very deeply in the resurrection. And I believe it's the hope of all Christians. And I, I agree with the Apostle Paul that if we do not believe in the resurrection, if we do not believe that, um, that death comes from, life comes from death, dear Lord God, then yes, we should indeed eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so Lord, today I'm praying, Father, that the vision that you have, the vision that the apostles have, that all those who have faithfully carried this message throughout the years will come, Lord God, and fill this pulpit today, fill this room today as well, so that we can walk forward there, Lord God, and know there, Lord Father, that we have the better vision. So, Lord, we thank you because your spirit indeed teaches us. And so I pray, Father, for grace. Grace to speak. Lord, grace to hear. And even more so, grace to believe in Jesus' name. Do you, um, any of you who are Christians in the, um, from the 90s would um, remember um, a program, uh, uh, well, I guess it was a videotape back in the days, passing around called Hell's Bells. You know, the expose of music and kind of looking at the, the dark meanings behind music. And I want to begin with that. As, a, as an excerpt, and I want to kind of, you know, I have, I want to take something that I think most of us kind of identify with, if not all of us, I want to take a Bob Marley tune, and add some expose to that, and say, this is typical of what people think Christians are. I want to take us through the lyrics, first and foremost, of the song, Get Up, Stand Up. Now, we all feel that, don't we? And no doubt at some point even have sung to it. But hopefully, maybe now you'll think a little bit more clearly about jumping and dancing to that. But let me say, let me, let, me, let me repeat it for you and kind of just show you that vision of what people believe a revolution is about. Preacher man, don't tell me. Heaven is under the earth. I know you don't know what life is really worth. You see that right at the head? You, you're trying to tell me that dying is the way you live? Now, I know you don't really know what life is really worth, Bob is telling us, and Peter. He said that all that glitters is gold. Half the story ain't never been told. So now you see the light. Hey, you stand up for your right. Come on. Most people think great God will come from the sky, take away everything, and make everybody feel high. But if you know what life is worth, you will look for yours on earth. And now you see the light, you stand up for your right. Ja. <laughs> We're sick and tired of your ism schism game, dying and going to heaven in our Jesus' name. Lord. We know when we understand, Almighty God is a living man. Little, little did Bob and Peter know that Haley Selassie would die two years later. Ah. 
<laughs> so, as far as I'm aware, they never corrected this song post 75. <laughs> so, let me just sit, let me put that there as a little bit of criticism. You can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. So now you see the light. What you gonna do? We're gonna stand up for our so you're better. <laughs> you know, if you were to pick, compare two ideas of how to start a revolution, it's quite easy to see which people prefer. You know, that song is, um, as far as I'm aware, um, the theme song of Am Amnesty International. You know, when they go and anywhere they go to pick it, they stand up and this is what, stand up for you, right? And we all love it. We all enjoy it. We all can get with it. And we all believe that, it, to some extent, we need to put some force if we want to see a revolution and see things change. The idea that the oppressed can be put, can put the world to rights. The whole idea of standing up and that me as the oppressed person can put the, things to, the whole world to rights, I have to be honest with you, is a fool's dream. What I want to do here is set the record straight about Christianity, what Christianity offers in its vision of a revolution. Much like the Rastafarians, the Jews of Jesus' time had their own similar idea of what they wanted the Messiah to be. It is much the same as, you know, it's the, much the same of having a charismatic leader who will rally the troops together, conquer the oppressor, and live in peace. But we already know that this story does not end with a happily ever after because the new system then comes corrupt and leads people into a new spiral of oppression. And I challenge anybody to not look at the history books, no matter what country you are in, and see that if, not to show, if that is not the truth. We've tried it for centuries, millennia. The book of Judges to Second Chronicles are written for this very purpose, to show us that no matter who leads us, whether a revolutionary leader like the people who, and, and the man of a people like Gideon, you know, one of the people that gets up, let's stand up for our rights, let's go and get those Midianites. Rhymes, isn't it? <laughs> or whether it's somebody of regal stature like David, or even Saul, someone from the monarchy, you'll all end up in the same place. You end up in Judges 21 and 22, and you end up in Babylon. A people in chaos, tearing themselves apart, in civil war, or you end up in the land of some foreign power. The disciples also believed that this is what Jesus would be. In fact, they argued to this extent of who will be the ones that will be next to him as he was taking control of Israel. If you cast your minds back to the Second Iraq War, one of the slogans that was, um, <laughs> that was of note was this wanting to win hearts and minds. And to win the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people. What is winning hearts and minds? Well, 
This is what one of the definitions I find. Winning hearts and minds is a concept occasionally expressed in the resolution of war, insurgency, and other conflicts in which one side seeks to prevail, not by the use of a superior force, but by making emotional or intellectual appeals to sway supporters off the other side. But even then, still we saw a whole lot of artillery in order to try and make that happen. If we have learned anything from our recent history, it is that one, that one has never been won over by someone else's side by the threat of violence or cancellation. In the midst of a civil conflict, there is no pleasing everyone, no matter what side you are on. Turn with me to our text today, which is in John 12, please. And we're going to be reading from verse 20. And I want to kind of go through line by line and then see how this notion of revolution is really actually changed, as Jesus says. And even to some extent speaks directly to what we just learned in in what we just witnessed in the lyrics of Bob Marley and Peter Tosh's song. So turn with me to John 12. I'll be reading from the ESV. We'll go line upon line. So please be, you know, bear with me as we do that. John 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, let me stop there. Greeks, in this sense, doesn't necessarily mean people from Greece. Greeks was a generic term that referred to Gentiles as a whole. It was a collective term. And as a whole, it means that there were some people that were not obviously Jewish sense. So this is not the same as what we see in Acts where they were Greek-speaking Jews. These were literally foreigners who were now actually seeking Jesus. So they came to Philip, who was, verse 21, to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. You know, we'll stop there. So no other gospel records this particular event. And I believe that this is one of those things that John finds um, writing much later than any of the other gospel writers to be important because obviously he's living in a time when the Gentile church is obviously much bigger than the Jewish church. And to some extent, he sees the significance. He recalls this and sees the significance of this event because to some extent, he witnessed what Jesus could see in the future. And it became important in his time. And he saw how, obviously, the Gentile ministry flourished, even more so than the Jewish one. You know, so why Philip? Well, Philip has a Greek name, and so to some extent, they may have been accessible. Maybe, Greek, you know, it's assumed, possibly, that Philip also spoke foreign languages, because Bethsaida was one of those places where he was quite close to a lot of other foreign-speaking uh, places. And so, Philip might have been that, imper- that, that person that could have connected two worlds together. And it's interesting because both Philip and Andrew are kind of noted as those who kind of go and spread the message and bring others into the faith. So Andrew brings Peter, his brother, into the faith. And Philip also goes and brings Nathaniel into the faith as well. So there's, there may be something about their personalities that made them particularly approachable more than the other disciples. And so that's something of note. So 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. For that reason, again, for that reason, I believe that, again, 
Philip and um, Andrew are important because they are, I guess, the connecting people. So let's move on to 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So throughout the book of John, this whole idea of the hour is quite an important one. And now, finally, we arrive at the announcement of these Gentile, of these Gentile God-fearers who want to, uh, to kind of come and have a conversation with Jesus. And remember, the cultural boundaries at the time where you had to kind of ask if you can talk to somebody, you know? And again, maybe one of those things of etiquette that we maybe need now. You know, it's all right we have a conversation. No doubt those of us who don't like having conversations on trains with random strangers might wish that etiquette continued on as well. But, that's the rea- but that was the reality. Can I, do, is it all right if we, we kind of talk? And this puts Jesus into the back. Now the hour has come. At the point when these Gentiles are ready to embrace the gospel, it would seem. And it is finally here. So the God-fearing Gentiles triggered Jesus' timing of the mission to glorify God. So this is the whole idea that now he can see that the mission has come almost to its end. At least in his earthly cycle. And it certainly seems plausible that John is writing with hindsight about events that will have later significance. And again, the fact that the Gentile church grows rapidly. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So again, speaking to the resurrection, speaking to the whole idea of why we are even here today. Jesus now speaks of the giving of life as being the source of other people receiving life. It's not about me holding my life. In chapter 15, Jesus would seems to expand on this idea with the whole idea of the vine and people living within him and growing from him. Paul also uses a similar metaphor in 1 Corinthians 15, 36 to 37 about the seed being sown in order for it to become transformed. It's that whole idea of that dying into the ground, being sown by God. You know, contrary to anti-Christian thought, the gospel is not about death, but life. A seed that does not get sown will not be of benefit to anyone, and even to itself, as it dies alone. So even if you sit and they say, I, will, I refuse to be sown, when you kind of understand that from a theological, a broader theological perspective, you start to see when, when the, uh, the, the man in the parable of the, 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 the talents brings God back his coin, how offended he is. You've not done anything. I'm just trying to keep myself. And then even then, you're not even a benefit to yourself. But if it is sown, it can feed and nourish others and continue its legacy, such is, such as the next verse fully illuminates. In other words, it's, a, it's about the whole idea of life. And so when you speak into an agrarian culture, a seed that's not sown is a seed wasted, a life wasted. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Much like the Proverbs, this uses, it's, it's used like a doublet. 
So we have that thing in the seed there, and then the further one clarifies and expands the idea. So when you read through Proverbs, you, you, you'll notice that lots of them come together as what we call doublets. One brings a general idea, and then the next one, the next verse, expands on it. So I want to go into an example here because I've got a kind of a bit to go through. But however, this is exactly what's happening here. If you give your life as a sacrifice, you will gain the benefit of truly flourishing others as well as yourself. The challenge here is getting beyond the seed mentality to unleash your true potential through God. Again, contrary to anti-Christian thought, or even Bob Marley and Peter Tosh's idea of Christianity being weak and submissive to oppression, you actually find that the gospel subverts evil by doing good. It's not about bowing down because you're, 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 you're complicit with oppression. You're bowing down because you suddenly realize that in that oppressor, you see someone who needs to be so saved too. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So this is John's grand call for the discipleship of the believer. So this is so every the synoptics do it kind of generally in a, in a, in a different way, but here is the call to discipleship. And it also expands on the previous verse. Well, what is he calling it? So Jesus will die, and to some extent, he's also telling us that we also need to die. We don't die in the same way that he does. We don't become submissive in the same way. He, his life changes everyone's. We are, in that sense, changing the lives of those we're in contact with in our own community. In a fallen world, we must not be surprised that the value of the kingdom seem upside down. As the way back to God will require us to see from his perspective so let me illustrate this, you know, to some extent. Someone who is involved, for example, in a car accident, where the car is tipped over, and they, you know, and they, and they're literally upside down. That's the notion of the world. We're in an upside down car, and everything we see is from that upside down perspective. And we can be disorientated because if you stay that way. You will always see the world that way. And so to some extent, if you could imagine, as unrealistic as it would be, that you spent most of your life upside down. When people try to tell you how the world really is, it sounds preposterous. People walk on the ground. That's crazy. I've only been in this car seat. I can't imagine what people would do. And that's the whole idea. You mean to tell me that... This, what I've been calling the sky is the ground? <laughs> it's a silly illustration, but it kind of gives you an idea of what it means to be in an upside-down world, doesn't it? And how disorientated we can be when somebody tries to tell us how it really ought to be. But if we really believe in the fool, that's where we are. We are trying to, in a sense, give an upside-down logic 
to a people who have become orientated to an upside-down world. So it is with how the gospel is presented to us, upside-down, and it becomes the way of sin, and because of the way sin entered into the world as a lie, this is the lie that we also need to subvert. As the serpent said to Eve that if she ate the fruit, she will live and not die, as the Lord said. The way back requires us to be reorientated back to how the world, the world is. So we need to counter that claim. People believe that us doing what we want as we see fit, as our eyes see fit, as our pride sees fit, as our desire sees fit, that's living. And it all descends from this whole idea of, I will choose what's good and right for me. So everything that counters that is like talking to people in an upside down world. That can't be true. You must live by the word of God. What about me? And what I want to do, my dreams. Do you want to live? Or, again, like what seems popular now, do you want to be walking dead? You ever wonder why zombie movies are so, and zombie things are so, you know, it, it, it reflects interesting human realities. You know, the one that I like the most is the zombie, the, the, the phone zombie. <laughs> Verse 27. Now is my, tr- my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but this, for this purpose I have come to this hour. So the purpose of Jesus was not to become another David figure who will vanquish the foreign invaders and set up a new ethnocentric nation. Jesus' second coming will fulfill this purpose, but in order for the kingdom that he will set up to have any humans in it, he will need to die in their place as the Lamb of God. You know, that's, a, that's the irony of it all. Everyone's ready for this new kingdom, this everlasting kingdom that, you know, that was promised to David in 2 Samuel um, 7. Oh, I want to be a part of that kingdom, but without Jesus doing this, there'll be nobody in it. Yet we have that pride of thinking that we are going to be a part of God's righteous people when none of us are righteous. And that's why the revolution has to look different. It can't just be another insurgency and uprising and rooting out the old oppressors and bringing in the new oppressed to rule. Jesus' second coming will fulfill this, believe me. But in order for there to be anybody in it, he has to do a work in us. 
verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You know, to live for the the glory of God is very different than living for your own glory. Here Jesus becomes the fulfillment of what Adam was meant to be, to become the one who radiates the glory of the Godhead. You know, that's the whole idea is that the world is created as a temple, and then within the temple you normally have a picture of the God at the front, at the head of it. And that's a picture of Adam when put in the garden as being the head, the glory of God, the image of God to make it a true temple. But when we start to say, actually, I want to reflect my own glory, we no longer become the glory of God. This whole idea of reflecting someone else's glory, the creator's glory, again, seems alien to us when when we really truly understand we owe him everything. But that's the beauty of the gospel, is that it's now bringing us back to life. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. This event um, seems to divide the crowd, as some believe it will be a mere, believe it to be a mere natural phenomenon. And this is, again, one of those interesting themes in John, isn't it? That Jesus, in a sense, divides opinion. Even as people look at the things that he does and things that he says, some people go, well, that's just nonsense. It's just, you know, crazy and all the rest of it. And other people go, no, no, I think God is really doing something here. The identity of Jesus seems to put people at odds with one another. And I think the highlight of this, and and, and I think the key text of all this is is John 9 with the man born blind where everybody seems to be kind of in two minds of who Jesus is by virtue of him opening a blind man's eyes and people are confused and people do theological gymnastics to try and prove he isn't who he is and the man in a sense brings a simple logic he says look nobody has ever done this and God, we know that God does not hear sinners. So how has this man done it? And ultimately you do the, um, as most people do when they don't really have an argument, they just attack the man. Oh, we just don't, you know, we just don't believe him. He's just, he's just a nonsense man. And don't deal with the argument. Verse 30. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. So Jesus backs up this point by stating that, you know, this is about them. When you see an an event happen at the same time where, you know, where Jesus is making an important point, your idea is, what are you, who are you going to say he is? What are you going to say he is? And it divides. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Contrary to the belief that judgment of the world will come at the end of time, Jesus now states that the judgment of the world begins at the cross. 
Jesus' death and resurrection is indeed the point of history in which the plan of redemption is fulfilled. In other words, we don't look to the end. We believe that the judgment and all that has been done has already been fulfilled. That's the reason why he stands and he says, it is finished. All history points on that moment. That's why this is such an important time for us. This is the center of This point is the center of history that Jesus is talking to. Jesus' death and resurrection fulfills history. We are already, as the disciples believe, living in the end times. Everything that happened post the resurrection is referred to the end times, the last days. Verse 32. Oh, sorry, no, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. No, sorry, that was 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It's an interesting way that Jesus puts this, though, why lifting up to the earth. Again, there's you know, some interesting parallels with Numbers 21 and the lifting up of the serpent and it being that point of redemption and salvation for those who were bitten by the serpent which is an interesting analogy all of itself, and I wish I could jump into that and, and look at that, that whole idea of being bitten by the certain, and then look into, look into this, this figure in order to be redeemed. It's interesting how he, he, he looks at this whole idea of the process of when you, you know, whenever we watch the reenactments, we see how people are laid onto the cross, and then they are... Either, you know, they, 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 you know, nailed to the cross on there and then hoisted up with the ropes into the pedestal that will keep them in place. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't see this as a point of defeat, but he expresses it as a point of victory. When I am lifted up, not speaking so much of the ascension, but speaking of his death. He will draw people onto you. So he recasts this as a point of victory. Not as a point of defeat. And it reminds us also of where we began in verse 20, where he's talking about all people. Not just a Jewish population, not just a, a Jewish section, but he, looks, he says, all people now will be drawn onto me through this miracle of him being lifted up in victory on the cross. Verse 33. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And so that, at this point, he was, even John is making the connection that Jesus knew that he would be dying on the cross. And that is the significance. So he's not, and so this and it also clarifies that he's not talking about the ascension as much as he's talking about the cross. So it helps us to, to navigate what Jesus is saying and know that he's locating it at a particular point in history. That that is his victory over sin and death. Verse 34. So the crowd answered him, 
We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So even from the perspective of the crowd, they also understood this as being lifted up onto the cross. So John clarifies it, and also the crowd clarifies that they understand, but we have never understood the Messiah in this context. When I read 2 Samuel 7, he says that he will live forever. His kingdom will continue forever. How is it? So much like our Rastafarian friends and detractors, these Jews also take issue with the dead Messiah being unhelpful to their needs. How can a dead Messiah help us? That doesn't make sense. How will he direct us? How will we understand where we need to go and what to do and what laws to pass and what things to, where to set our boundaries? None of that can happen if he's dead, can it? Thirty-five. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Bob may think he has shown you the light, <laughs> but actually Jesus is the light. And those who cannot accept the Messiah who dies and saves us from our sin and not someone else will remain in darkness. Can you see how the contrast is so stark? From Bob's perspective, a dead Messiah makes no sense. Now you see the light. But Jesus says the different. This is actually the light that you need. This is the understanding you need to grasp. This is what you need in your upside-down world to grasp if you're going to understand what I'm trying to do. I know I'm messing that song up for you. <laughs> but <laughs> you can't have anything different. If you deny this as the revelation from Jesus' own mouth, the only alternative is a lie. And the lie that has been there from the very beginning. And that actually you will be in darkness if you can't receive this. While you have the light, believe in the light. Verse 36, sorry. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is where I end. You know, I like this verse, and it, I wanted to cap here, because you cannot admire the truth from afar. You've got many people who kind of like, you know, yeah, 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 I kind of respect your view, and, you know, don't, you know I kind of like that whole, you know, I like the Jesus vibe. It's good. Uh, it, it makes the world a better place, I believe so. But whatever we believe will inevitably hold close to ourselves until it becomes like the air we breathe. 
Our belief, our worldview, what we truly hold dear in our lives becomes the air we breathe. We don't even think about it. The truth of this statement is that if the light is in you, is darkness a deception, then everything you believe will likewise become distorted by that deception. In other words, whichever way you are, you're going to become a son of that thing. Jesus makes no qualms, especially in John's gospel, of telling the Pharisees themselves that they are sons of the devil because of what they believe about him. And we like to try and create that little neutral ground, but the gospels never give us any neutral ground in which to stand. You either believe in the light or you don't because the whole idea is that you will become sons of the light. In other words, that's what Jesus is trying to say. If you believe this, it will be the air you breathe. Everything will flow from it. So how do we apply this as we look to understand the resurrection? How do I land this? Well, I want to start at a book that really helped maybe this idea of the revolution. Um, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. Great book. Thanks, Brother Jay. Many years gave me that book. It's interesting because he, he references Les Miserables in that book as to kind of highlight a point. And I want to maybe go through that and try and give you that whole idea of how revolutions really are won. The setting of the book, it was a book before it was a musical, is 19th century France, and it's the June Rebellion. It's not the, 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 um, the 1700 Rebellion, it's the June Rebellion of 1832. The main characters are the outcasts, the depressed, as the title suggests. I believe that the message of the book is that there are two ways to start a revolution. You have the actual revolution on one side in which people set up barricades and rise up and, you know, stand up for your rights kind of people, which is the kind of revolution we like. It's the kind of revolution that's sexy, it's, it's romantic. It's the one that the disciples w- w- were willing to die for. That night they were willing. They had the swords and everything ready to fight for that type of revolution. But when they found it was actually quite different, that's the thing about it. They were not cowards. Don't get me wrong. They were not cowards. They wanted to fight for something. They just didn't know what. Until it became clearer to them and the Spirit of God descended upon them. There are countless romantic pictures of that revolution in France. Liberty leading the people by Eugene Delacroix. You remember, you know, a picture of the lady with the, 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 the French flag going forward. Everyone I know has probably seen it in one form or another. I've gone on to inspire generations in the spirit of revolution. The problem with these violent uprisings is that they leave little sympathy for the oppressor. Because forgiveness is not at its center, it leads to a new oppressor being formed out of the old oppressed. 
However, the uprising in Les Miserables fails and leaves many dead. So they're left to think about what place justice might be, in what place justice might be done. The main story is actually centered on one, or you could say two men, Jean Valjean and Javert. Jean Valjean is a convict, and Javert is the police officer. The quiet revolution, amidst this backdrop of this great revolution, takes place in the church, in which Jean Valjean is housed by a priest after he's freed from jail, and he finds he has nowhere to live. And it wasn't just regular jail, you know, the opening scene, especially of the musical and the book, is, is hard labor. He's a hardened man and he's a bitter man. We need to understand that. He's angry as well. He sees little hope for making a life as an ex-convict. No one pays him a proper wage. So Jean decides to rob the priest of his silverware. And he steals away in the night. However, John is caught by the police and returned to the church, where they know the gifts that, 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 that those, those belong to the church. And they bring him back, and the priest, wake the priest up in the middle of the night. This man says that you, we believe that these things have been stolen from you. He doesn't make any, Jean Valjean makes no statement here. We're returning them to you, priest. And we have, we've found the convict and we're bringing him to you. And the priest says to them, no. I've given them to him. In fact, you've left the candlesticks. They're the most expensive thing. Please take those as well. Jean Valjean um, is left by the police and he's left in front of the priest. And he doesn't know what to say. And the priest says to him, I have bought your life for God. I have bought your life for God. That's the revolution that happens in his life. He witnesses grace, and this is such a great point how Philip Yancey makes it in the book. He receives grace when he should have been sent to jail, back to that hard labor that he was so angry of having endured. Jean Valjean is changed and is compelled to continue a walk in kindness and grace in which he has received, and we see that pass on as he takes on the case of Fontaine, Fontaine and takes charge of her daughter, Corsette, when she dies. And the story goes on with kindnesses. All the time, Javert, the man of justice, is pursuing him vigorously. There comes a point where even Javert's life is spared by Valjean. And one of the most interesting parts of the book, and I guess even as the musicals there, the, a, a musical high point is Javert, the man of justice, doesn't know what to do with grace. He 
he knows what he deserved and he, he can't understand and he decides actually to take his life because he refuses to move from the whole idea of justice to grace. He lives and breathes justice. And those who try to live and breathe justice will ultimately find that grace is never going to be enough. They just don't understand it. grace of the priest transforms his life. And it's this, I think, is the heart of a different revolution that Victor Hugo wants actually to show you. We are never going to change the world unless we change people's hearts. Grace needs to be at the heart. One of the final songs of the... Um, in the actual musical is, is something quite poignant and I, 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 I go through some of the lyrics with you now. Do you hear the people sing? Singing the song of angry men. It is the music of the people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? This is an interesting point in the song because it's that life beyond the barricade I think is interesting. It's posed as a question. Is there a life beyond the barricade that you long to see? How will you get it? Are you going to vow, violently stand upon your oppressor and, and demand your rights? Or will you submit to God? The revolution at Calvary. In the great act of love, we set, he set the oppressed free. In the context of the gospel, even the oppressor is victim of oppression and are in need of help. The oppressors are victims of the devil as well. And that's what's important. If Jesus came as the conquering icon, Lion of Judah, then no one would have been saved. Grace makes the difference. Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, shaking our fist at him, Christ died for us. He died for the angry people. He died for us. Since therefore we have, been, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Moreover than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the gospel's way of starting a revolution. Why we were enemies. Why we even angry at him. He dies for us. And yet even lives for us. Do you believe this? This is me just about to lay my argument down as to why we are not obsessed with death. We're obsessed with life as believers. We want to live. But we want to live in the world that God has made, not the one that we have made. I leave you with this. John 11, 23 to 27. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe in this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.